introductions like that can never be lived up to. Um, I expected to find out that the Apostle Paul was speaking when I hear that that kind of introduction, but I pray I will be able to live up to it. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and I count it a privilege, but I must confess that I consider Christian college audiences the toughest in the world to prepare for. First of all, you're just back from spring break and really feeling like being back here, I'm sure. You've had lots of chapel messages already. It's late in the year and all the good stuff's already been said. So I thought about resorting to my series on the birds of the Bible, but I'm not going to do it. Some of you are regulars in my church, therefore I can't say anything here that I've said recently there. So I had to work on something new. And I know how hard I was on chapel speakers when I was a college student at a Christian college. And I am fearful that God has determined that this is payback time. I trust not. And I trust that we will be able to join together in our study of the word in these moments and be blessed by the Spirit of God as we do so. Would you bow with me in prayer as we prepare to look at the word? Father, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is that which if we will hide in our hearts, we will discover the way so that we will not sin against you. Father, as we come to your word this morning and deal with a subject that is close to all of our hearts, even though we would wish it not to be, we pray that by your spirit we will grasp your truth, but more than that, we will respond. Just before I came up, we sang, I love you, Lord. May that be true in all of our hearts. And may our hearing of your word reflect that love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Having been asked to come and speak to you, I uh, gave a great deal of thought to what it is that I should say, because I do count it a privilege to speak to you this morning. I see the potential that you have for the cause of Christ. I see the many years of service that you cumulatively have to offer to the body of Christ. And, and it is my prayer that there might be just something I could say that would encourage you, build you up in your faith, and cause you to be more of what God would desire for you. As I considered what I should say, though, I kept coming back to a passage of Scripture that the Lord has been impressing on my heart in great ways over the past two years. And I've studied this and gone away from it and come back to it and gone away from it. And to be quite honest, I was very resistant to the thought of preaching this text to you. In fact, I, I, I worked on it and then I set it aside and so I'm going to find something else. But I kept coming back to it. Final confirmation even came last night. I had finished what I wanted to say here, but I was just saying, Lord, is this what you want me to say? And I picked up the scripture collection that I read morning and evening, a scripture collection called Daily Light on the Daily Path. 
And I opened it up last night to the reading that I was to do and found the same text. Now, I'm not into the big touchy-feely type stuff, but I got to tell you, that, that hit me. And I said, Lord, all right, you win. Besides, I don't have time to do anything else anyway. But I want to speak to you this morning about the subject of temptation. A subject that, as I said in my prayer, is all too close to our hearts, even though we don't want it to be. A subject that I believe is all too often misunderstood by Christians. Our reactions to temptation vary from horror at the very thought that we've even been tempted, all the way to the other extreme, to a casual, almost nonchalant acceptance of a fairly high percentage of failure when it comes to temptation. People of the world, those who do not know our Lord, look at our convictions concerning what sin is, and of course then, by extension, what temptation is, and they reject those convictions, thus rejecting the idea that temptation is even a bad thing if you're talking about the enticement to do that which is morally wrong. Most of the world rejects our standard of morality, so they reject our thought of temptation. To them, temptation is nothing more than should I eat this piece of chocolate or not. For us, it is much, much more. By the same token, the world takes great joy when they, say Christ, they see Christians not live up to the standards we proclaim. The highly visible moral failures of so many Christian leaders over the past decade has provided great fodder and ammunition for those who would seek to undermine the reality of faith by claiming that no one can live it out. In the past six months or so, I guess it would be, I've spoken with a number of pastor friends of mine around the country. And we've talked together about some of the things we have faced as we have counseled with people in our offices, people from our churches or people from our community who name the name of Christ. The list of things that we have had to deal with is rather bizarre. And I would tell you that most of them are things that we never learned about dealing with in seminary. In the past two years, as we compared notes as pastors, we found that we've faced situations among professing believers dealing with such things as marital infidelity and unfortunate, that's become almost minor league on the list. Homosexuality, alcoholism, or if you prefer the biblical term, drunkenness, habitual viewing of pornography, physical abuse of a spouse, both physical abuse of a wife by a husband and physical abuse of a husband by a wife, chronic dishonesty, and in probably the most extreme case, one of my friends was counseling with a former Baptist pastor who was now a practicing transvestite. Now, these rather high-profile problems are dwarfed in my mind, by the other, less drastic but equally serious situations that we find as Christians across the board seem to surrender on a fairly regular basis to temptation. It's almost as if Christians have taken the words of Oscar Wilde and inscripturated them when he said, I can resist anything except temptation. And we tend to think it's the normal state of affairs when Christians 
have two or three victories to report in the midst of dozens of failures. Now this morning, I do not want to get into the question or issue of how the church has gotten itself into this mess. That is an important question. And lots of different answers can be suggested. Lack of stress on biblical holiness, improper teaching of the word, the influence of a permissive society. And we could go on and come up with other reasons why the church is in this mess. It's a worthy study, but one that's beyond what I can share with you this morning. Neither do I want to spend much time talking about definitions of temptation as opposed to sin. Let me just say very simply, it is not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to give in to temptation. So we should not be surprised at all that we're tempted. We have an enemy who will constantly throw temptation in front of us. And he has allies in our flesh. But it is a sin to give in to temptation. And when we lose the battle to temptation, we should be convicted. What I would like to speak to you about this morning, though, is how do we find the strength to resist temptation successfully as a regular pattern of life? This should be well understood by us. But I've had the chance now, through my travels and through conversations with pastors and having a chance to speak in a few other churches as well as my own, I've discovered that too many Christians tell me that a regular pattern of victory over temptation is a rarity in their lives and in their experience. And they're awed when they meet someone who can report a high level of success. Shouldn't be that way, but it is. Now, in considering this, I've been drawn back to one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Hebrews, and to the second chapter. And I would ask you to turn there. The epistle of Hebrews stresses the superiority of Jesus Christ to every other so-called means of approaching God, even among religious people, even among those who knew the Old Covenant. He is shown in the book of Hebrews to be superior to Moses. He is superior to the law. He is superior to angels. He is superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the sacrificial system. He is in every way superior to anything that Jewish believers had ever been exposed to at a prior time. And in chapter 2, his ministry as our great high priest comes into focus. And in the middle of this discussion of the superiority of Jesus and the introduction of him as our high priest, we come to a section beginning in verse 14 that I want to read to you. And I want to focus this morning on verse 18. But we'll begin with verse 14. It says there, Since then... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
Here's the verse I want to highlight. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of all those who are tempted. What I'd like to do this morning as we look at this section and specifically this verse is address simply two important facts that are communicated to us here. The first is the reality of temptation. Now that may sound terribly simple. It may sound like a no-brainer. Of course temptation is real. But I am not convinced that believers take seriously the pervasive nature of temptation in their lives. And I want us to consider that this morning. You notice the end of the verse, it speaks of those who are being tempted. Temptation is never seen as something that we may or may not face in this life. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us there has no temptation or trial overtaken you, but such is as common to man. It says it's a common experience to all of us. In James chapter 1, verse 13, it speaks of a man's response to temptation and it says his response should be a certain way when he is tempted, not if he is tempted. It says that those who are being tempted are in view. It presents an ongoing process. You know as well as I do, there are certain people from certain doctrinal perspectives who claim they get to the point where they no longer sin and are no longer tempted by it. My mother was raised in such a tradition. My father was raised in an opposite tradition. So depending on which set of grandparents I happened to be visiting, I could either find out that sinless perfection was a possibility, or I could find out I was a fool if I ever thought sinless perfection was a possibility. So family reunions could be fun. Unfortunately, when a person claims that they no longer sin and are no longer tempted, they have succumbed to two temptations. One being pride, the other being lying. What does John say to us in the first epistle? He writes, if we say we have no sin. What does it say? Come on, don't speak in tongues. Tell me, what does he say? We call him a liar. The truth is not in us. Temptation is ongoing. It's continual. It is a fact of life, and it continues in everyone's life. I get so burned when people talk to me as if temptation is in the past tense. I have a good friend, a mentor, who is in his 60s, who reminds me frequently that Timothy was told, flee youthful lusts, but he wasn't told, just flee them as a young man. He says he still has to flee them. In fact, Timothy may have been almost 40 when that was told to him, which I take great comfort in, having just turned 39. To feel like, I can still have youthful lusts? Hooray! Oh, wait a minute. No, youthful lusts will be with us forever because lust will be with us forever. Temptation is a continual experience that we have. 
The context reminds us that it's believers who face temptation and find help. I know that we shouldn't be this way, but there are times when we look at the world and we're kind of like the psalmist in Psalm 73 who says, they've got it so easy. Look at how the wicked prosper and it doesn't even bother them. It should not surprise us. If they don't believe in temptation, they're not going to be bothered when they succumb to it. If they don't believe in morality, they will not be offended when they violate it. But somehow, some Christians go around surprised that pagans seem to have an easier time of it with temptation than we do. They don't have an easier time. They just don't care. That shouldn't surprise us. We should not expect to see unsaved men worrying about making great strides against temptation. You know, the amazing thing is that God in His common grace allows pagan people to win any victories over temptation. But He does. The Scriptures tell us that God causes His rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. And that common grace continues into mankind and allows even unsaved people sometimes to resist their baser instincts. But by and large, the world doesn't care about it. And we should not be surprised when pagans continue to act like pagans, choosing not to resist temptation. Temptation is real. And we're told that we are those who are being tempted. But I wonder sometimes if we take that very seriously. I, I, being a pastor, you cannot help but travel in a lot of Christian circles. And uh, I suppose that's one of the drawbacks of the job or of the calling. Don't get me wrong, I love the body of Christ. But I'll tell you what, we have so sanitized and so cleaned up our acts and we've learned all the right lingo to say when it comes to temptation that about the best most pastors can do when you talk about temptations, well, pray with me, brother, that uh, I'll just stay humble in the midst of all the great success that I'm having. Pray with me that I'll that I'll pray more or witness more. I'm tempted not to say things. And it's not just pastors, it's Christians in general. It's almost like we never lust anymore. The Bible says that we do. But how often are we honest in the fact that we battle it? It's almost as if we, we cannot admit that we are tempted at times to be petty, to be selfish, to crave the approval of others. Well, I don't know how it happens that I missed out the excuse for those kinds of things, but I still struggle with that. In fact, I know that there are unique temptations to being a Christian college student, because I once was one of you. And I want to share with you seven potentially deadly sins that a college Christian college student can succumb to in temptation. First of all, the temptation to assume that this is the period of preparation. Following will come the period of ministry. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And I will tell you that the church of Jesus Christ in this community languishes for some of you to get past succumbing to the temptation that somehow ministry is for tomorrow or the day after tomorrow or after graduation. Ministry is needed yesterday. And if God has put 800 plus of you in this community, He hasn't done it by accident. There's work to be done. 
Secondly, the temptation to allow the study of the Word of God academically to replace feeding your soul on the Word. Boy, as a pre-seminary Bible major, I got Bible exposition courses. I got two years of Greek in my undergrad. I got theology courses. I got a theology course from a guy who edited the book that we happened to be going to. Not the Bible, although he was fairly old. Um, he edited the theological text we were using. He had taught this course so long, he had the overheads memorized. So he'd stand there with a stack of overheads and he'd just start talking and just slap them up there and he never looked to see if he was on schedule or not. He'd done this so often. He knew this stuff and, and he was a godly man. But you know, for many of us in that class, the godliness didn't seem to rub off. It was just we had to learn the verses, we had to learn the outline, we had to learn these things and we could quote these outlines but somehow we never saw that we needed this stuff to warm our hearts. Thirdly, there's the temptation to equate academic success with spiritual progress. Just because you passed yourself a Bible course doesn't mean that you have grown in Christ. I did the whole thing academically. And I don't, I don't say this to brag, but I, I managed to get through my undergrad with a 4.0. I got plaques. I got awards. I got certificates. I got applause. Some of those plaques I couldn't find now. One of them I recall that, that highlights my winning a certain award. The, the thing that had my name on it fell off, so it's just blank there now. I got all of those things. I did all the things you could do in a Christian undergraduate institution and I loved it and I still love the school that I went to and I appreciate all that it did for me. But I'll tell you what. One year, no, one month in real life ministry down where people are hurting does just as much for you as four years of academic pursuit. Now I'm not saying don't pursue the academics. You need to be prepared. I'll tell you what, I am much more excited about the fact that I've had a chance to see some people come to Christ than I ever am. i got plaques that fall apart. It is so much more important to realize that real ministry, real success in the eyes of God comes down to are you involved in people's lives? Are you a light for Jesus Christ? Are people having a chance to rub shoulders with you and see that you're real? There's a tremendous temptation to think that because I'm doing well in the assigned program, I am progressing spiritually. Some of the guys that I know who did as well as I, either in my school or other schools or in seminaries, are washouts today because they thought that by getting the degrees they'd gotten it all. Fourthly, there's the temptation to allow institutional spirituality to replace personal zeal. Do you know what I'm talking about by institutional spirituality? I do not mean that as any sort of slight to the institution. But when you gather all these Christians and gather all these workers, there's this kind of this praise the Lord lingo that goes on. And everybody knows how to talk it and everybody knows how to live it and there's this aura of, 
of expectation that we are all to do these things together and be spiritual together. And there's a sense that we can very easily just kind of give into that and turn our own lives onto autopilot and just feed off all the other stuff going on around us. And it lasts for a little while. And then we go home on break. And we're removed from that cocoon, from that environment that has given us so much. And we find that our own souls have been sucked dry of devotion. There's the temptation to accept what you are being told. I don't want to get in trouble here, but the temptation to accept what you are being told without being a Berean like Acts 17 where it says to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. I do not say this in any way to disparage anything you're being taught, but I will tell you what. I am convinced that your teachers, especially those teaching you the Bible, would like nothing better than to know that each of you go back to your room and look at the Scriptures and examine them to make sure that what they are saying hits the mark. I like it a lot when someone comes to me and says, Pastor, i got a question about your message. You said this, but over in this Scripture it says, so how do I live with that? I love that. I live for that. Because you know what that tells me? It tells me that I'm not creating a bunch of people who just trust what I say. Don't you dare go out of here believing something because I said it. Or you've succumbed to this temptation. You bought the party line. And we've got our party lines in evangelicalism. And we better make sure that they add up to what the Scripture says. There's the temptation see if you can identify this one, to go home to your home church and parents and become critical of their lack of depth or understanding or teaching. Well, I can remember going back to... I, I need to... How many of you come from home churches of 200 or less? Okay? Fair number of you. That's what I grew up in. I'd never... I, I mean, for us, a mega church was 250. I, I grew up in the Midwest, and we just didn't have a lot of big churches. But, you know, I can remember, I went to this Christian college and we'd hear some top-notch speakers and I'd sit in these Bible classes just kind of with my jaw slacking. Wow! Never heard that before. And then I went home and went to the college-age Sunday school class taught by a dear saint who'd never been to college. And I remember sitting there so smugly saying, Well, I can't wait to get back to school where you have some real teaching." And I remember sitting in critiquing my pastor and saying, boy, he's nothing like so-and-so. God forgive me. Maybe they weren't what I had heard. But maybe they were doing the best that they knew to do in service to the Lord. I think it's the same stupidity that causes single people to tell married people how to live and childless couples to tell parents how to raise their kids. When we as Christian college students would go back to our churches and tell the church, we've now got the answers for them. Get ready. Lastly, there's the temptation, especially as you've been here a few years, to become cynical as you observe the failures of so many other Christians around. You see people be hypocritical. You see, and I know it doesn't happen here, but it happened where I went to school. You see sometimes faculty do things that are less than godly. 
or administration treat people in a way you consider to be wrong. And you become cynical and critical and harsh and you think, it's all a game. Well, just so that you know that I'm not just picking on you with your seven deadly sins, let me share with you seven deadly temptations I think I face as a pastor of a growing church. I had to write these down. You probably know. The temptation to believe that I am somehow immune to the temptations of others. You know, if enough people talk to me like temptation is in the past tense, maybe I'll start to believe that. The temptation to believe the praise that I receive from people. Well, when you're in the pastor and people, oh, wonderful sermon, pastor, great sermon. Worst thing in the world is to begin believing your own press. The temptation to attribute a measure of our church's growth or success to me. Just a little. Not a lot, but just a little. The temptation, these are not particularly lovely things that I'm glad tempt me. I'm glad that in most instances I don't give in to them. The temptation to be jealous of those who receive recognition that I believe I deserve. I had a professor one time say to me, after I'd graduated and was laboring in the church I'm in now when it was just a church plant, you know, we always thought you'd really go places. I said, I did. I went to where God wanted me to be, and I couldn't be any happier. But I'll tell you, it's tempting at times when you see people... Your contemporaries getting recognition when your flesh is saying, hey, I deserve that. How about this one? This is ugly too. The temptation to be embittered at those who had no time to talk to me when my church was small but now want to be my friend when it's a big church or bigger we're not really big. Do you know how many offices I couldn't even get into when I was a pastor of a church of 65? How many people had no time would send me a letter or let me talk to a secretary? But now, it's amazing. I now have a church approaching, I think, about 500. And I don't claim any credit for that. Like I said, I can't claim any credit for it. I can't host a seminar on how to build a church because all I'd be able to do is charge people money and say, read John's book and send them home. I couldn't do it because the minute I did it, I'd have to admit the fact, you know, I started this saying, I don't have any answers. And I still don't have them, but God seems to be doing something through faithful preaching of the Word and through people in our congregation reaching out and winning their friends to Jesus Christ. But you know, it's awfully hard when people had no time for you and now that they see you being, quote, successful, they want to see you. The temptation, sixthly, to become selfish in my perspective on the body of Christ. To get angry when God decides to move somebody out of my congregation to another town when they're really gifted and I really want to hold on to them. And lastly, the temptation to allow myself to be boxed in by labels or the approval of others. Pastors are not immune. I am not immune. To allow labels to cause me to say I won't fellowship with somebody or I will fellowship with somebody or if I go here, someone's going to think poorly of me. And not to let my first consideration be, what does God want me to do? Having said all of that, let me close by just pointing you to the rescuer from all of these temptations. 
I don't know if anything I've mentioned touches you, but whatever your temptation, I want to point out to you a rescuer. His name is Jesus. In verse 17 of this text, we're told he's qualified to do this because he was made like us. He was made like his brothers. In verse 15 of chapter 4, where this subject is taken up again, we're told that he is, a, he is a high priest who has been tempted just like we have. It is so encouraging to me to know that Jesus has been tempted by the same things I've been tempted with. And I do not say this irreverently, but do you know that that includes things like lust? That includes things like greed? That includes things like the desire for popularity? It was Satan himself who put some of these temptations in front of Jesus Christ and said to him, I'll give you all the acclaim of the world if you'll bow down to me. Jesus Christ, it says in chapter 5 of Hebrews, in verses 8 and 9, was perfected by his suffering. You know what that tells me about his temptations? His temptations were not only real, they hurt. Now, I don't want Jesus to hurt, but I am encouraged by the fact that his temptations were real enough to be a real struggle, yet without sin. We see Jesus giving us an example in his life from the very first temptation we see in the wilderness to his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. When he resists the devil, when Peter urges him to turn away from the cross in Matthew 16 and he says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. When he faces the agony of Gethsemane, Jesus shows us two primary means that he used to resist temptation that he promised would work for us. The first being the word, it is written, it is written, it is written. And secondly, prayer. Matthew 26, 41, even as the disciples were sitting there near him in the garden before he left them, he said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. You say, oh, I'm so tired of being tempted. Oh, really? Has it, has it wearied you enough to make you a passionate student of the Word? Has it wearied you enough to pray, God, deliver me? Jesus has provided us an example. He has provided us a way of escape, it says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Not that we will not face temptation, but that there, He will make a way of escape that we can bear up under it. And then look with me at chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews, because this is so important. Having been told that we have a high priest in verse 15 who cannot... Who, who can rather sympathize with our weaknesses, who's been tempted in all things yet as we are, without, yet without sin, we're encouraged in verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive what we need. What do we need? Two things. That we may receive mercy. Why do we need mercy when it comes to temptation? We need mercy because of past failure. I cannot tell you how many Christians I know who are hesitant to come to Christ once again because for the 89th time they failed in the same thing. They say, oh God, I can't even come to you. This verse says you can. You can have confidence to come and know that whenever you come, honestly, confessing sin, you'll receive mercy for past failure. But you'll receive something else too. You will receive grace you will receive, it says, grace to help in time of need. 
You'll receive mercy for past failure. You'll receive grace for future needs. Jesus, it says in chapter 2, verse 16, has chosen to do this by grace. It says in verse 16, He does not help angels. Angels fell and He didn't help them. Men fell. And He chose by grace to provide us with help. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, have you, have you done an honest evaluation of your life? Do you know the temptations that you face? Do you really understand what they are? Or are you falling into things you don't even recognize as occurring in your life? May I encourage you with this thought. If you will get past your laziness, and I will get past my laziness, and I will do an honest evaluation of my life, and I will see the temptations that face me for what they are. And I will get to the point where I no longer offer excuses. Oh God, I couldn't help it. Oh God, it was really tough. But I just come honestly and say, God, no excuses. Here it is. Then you can be sure you're going to find two things. You're going to find mercy that will enable you to experience the forgiveness of God for every failure you ever had as a Christian and you will find grace so that you can stand. And you will find that as you will then study the Word of God and use prayer, two appointed means of grace, as you will use the fellowship and accountability of the body, another appointed means of grace, you will stand. But you've got to be honest. You can't assume that because you're batting 135 and everyone else is at .092 that that's good enough. We sang a hymn just before I came up, Amazing Grace. There was a verse of that that we didn't sing that I hope you know. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church where basically we memorized our hymns because we only sang 13 of them over and over again. But there was a verse in that song that speaks to this whole issue of needing God's mercy and His grace. It's the verse that begins through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I'd like us to stand. I'd like us to sing that in closing. And that will be our benediction. And I trust that God will use His Word to encourage you to know that you have a rescuer from temptation. One who by His grace will help you stand. Would you sing that verse with me? Through many days